Good morning and uh, welcome to Covenant. In case you don't know, my name is Jason and I'm one of the pastors here. And I am really excited to be here with you guys opening the Word of God. Um, it is uh, Easter Sunday in November. I did not wear my suit today, so I apologize for that. Um, it's probably too small, let's be honest with each other. Um, we're in John 20. If you want to go ahead and turn there in your Bibles, and we're going to try to get through the whole thing today of John 20. And as we've joked about being Easter Sunday, we are talking about the resurrection today. And um, I will tell you, um, it has been a really fun time studying this passage this week. Because the resurrection, I'm falling over here, the resurrection is the most important event in human history. Like you think about things that have happened, you know, we've walked through a pandemic, we've walked through 9-11, we have walked through all kinds of things, correct? But the resurrection is the most world-changing event in history. It's the moment that validated everything that Jesus said and taught. Up until then, he was like a, a really good teacher who said some pretty like, okay, you better back this up kind of things, right? Him rising from the dead meant he was true, he was right, and he was God. It also expanded the scope of God's family. Even as he promised Abraham back in Genesis that his family would grow and grow and grow and grow, and the resurrection helped transform this faith from being about the Israelite people to the entire world. It is the fire that, the, that lit the church and started the church, and the church has changed the world. It's changed the world, and it started at this event. The resurrection is why we can say stuff like this, 1 Corinthians. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Because of the resurrection. I've heard this phrase, I've been in church my entire life, I'm a good church boy, I'm not wearing a suit, I know that, but on Easter Sunday, but I'm a good church boy, um, and I've heard this phrase my entire life, resurrection life, heard that phrase? We have to live in the resurrection life, that kind of stuff, right? And we say that and we hear that, and, and, and it's true, it is true that we have this abundant life promised to us through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, that is true. But I think sometimes, maybe it's my own mind, maybe your minds too, we hear resurrection life and we think like, um, it's this, we imagine this life where someone's always smiling. They're always kind of pretty, right? They're just, there's just, life never bothers them. They're like floating. They have, they probably have money. They have this powerful life. It's all these kinds of things, this resurrection life. But that's, but I live in real life, amen? Last night at my father's house, full confession here, have, he grilled, watching the game, it's his great time, and Hattie Jane Wood dumps every toy out, and Tracy's gone doing groceries, stuff like that, so it's all on me, Right? And then I try to go in there and get her to stop her, and she blocks the door from me. Guys, she blocked the door from me. In that moment, I was not walking resurrection life. I was screaming, but I was not walking resurrection life. That's real life, isn't it? Real life, for many of us, 
is walking and struggling in sin over and over and over again, and nobody knows about it. It's this hidden, unconfessed sin that's just really hard. Real life is like looking at, and it's this time of year, isn't it? We just did these surveys, and you're looking at the bank account, right? And the bill's coming due, and you're just like, I have no idea how all this is going to add up. That's, that's real life. And so we have these two things that seem opposed. The resurrection life versus the real life. And we want, I will say we are made for resurrection life. But here's what's happened. The world has, the world has confused us in the church. The world has deformed our minds here in the church of what this life looks like. But in John 20, we see this pattern of what resurrection life can look like. Because I love what John does in this passage. Because the greatest event in human history has just happened. And John doesn't go big about all the implications on a grand scale. He goes through these accounts of Jesus' followers and closest friends. Of what they were experiencing the days after his death and when they first encounter a risen Jesus. And it's so personal, and we have so much to glean from this passage today. Because in this, we see, as I study this, there's really three different emotions or mental states that the characters are in in this passage that we're going to learn from today. So let's go to verse 1 in John 20. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, thank you, John, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went with the other disciple, and they were going towards the tomb. I love this here. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter. And he reached the tomb first. Can you imagine that? That's just the boldness in God's holy scripture say, I won the race. That is, that's impressive, John. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Can you imagine like just this moment in history? They saw the empty tomb. Then Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw linen cloths lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in place by itself. He folded his clothes up. That was very nice of him. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first. We get it, John. You got there first. <laughs> he also went in, and he saw, and he believed. For as yet, they did not understand the scriptures. They did not understand the scriptures. I want, I want us to back up for a moment. These are Jewish men this prophecy of the Messiah dying and resurrecting is all throughout the Old Testament. But it's also in Jesus' words himself. In Mark 9, it says this. He was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. He told them what was going to happen. Verse 32. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And we see it in verse 9. They did not understand this. did not make sense to them. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Verse 11. But Mary. This is so 
beautiful this picture of Mary and her devotion to Jesus, stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. What you see here with Mary is just this deep, deep despair. She, see, she believes that Jesus' body has been stolen by grave robbers. She doesn't fully get it yet that he's rose again. She thinks that he has died. She watched him murdered, and now his body has been stolen. Everything Mary thought was wrong. She was confused, and she was in deep, deep, deep despair. Now, you could argue this despair was rooted in not knowing the scriptures and not listening to Jesus and not seeing the big picture. Yes, you could. But she's in great despair because things did not go as she had planned. Ever been there? In great despair because she thought things were going to happen a certain way and they did not happen that way. We see this despair in Elijah, right? You know the story of Elijah in 1 Kings? He does all these great things for God. And like literally a verse later, he is in despair, ready to die. And I'm just reminded that this idea of despair, this emotion of despair, it's part of the human condition. That's why Mary's so relatable here. Who has not been in despair over life not going how we planned? Every person in this room is an example of despair of life not turning out the way that we think. Imagine, imagine what she saw in her life with Jesus. All the miracles, the teaching, just being in the presence of the God-man. And then imagine her confusion and hopelessness of the pre-resurrection life. Because for her, this has not happened yet. She was confused, hopeless, and in despair. So right now, you can probably think a moment in your life, right? Where you were, like, just hopeless. You had these plans for life or plans for this thing, and just something happened. Maybe you were sinned against. Maybe someone lied to you. Maybe there was an illness, a mistake you made. Whatever the situation is, you're here and you're just living in this despair and hopelessness. And what's interesting, we have these emotions of sadness, despair, e even friends that battle depression in this room. For some reason, we don't just like live in the despair, we also heap shame on this, don't we? Like, we don't love God enough to not be sad. So on top of our sadness, we heap shame. But look here, what do you think Jesus does when he catches Mary in this despair? You ever been crying in public? I do this all the time. Uh, crying at like a coffee shop, crying in public, and you're having a real conversation with somebody you know, like a, a deep friend, and then like the guy you kind of know comes up. You're like, oh, oh, hey, yeah, I'm good. I got allergies. You do that whole thing, right? We live this life. Friends, here's what we do. We live a life of hiding. We live a life of hiding. We, we, we are probably hiding from each other. You can hide from me. You can hide from your spouse. Hear this, friends. You can't hide from God. You can't hide from God. Jesus sees every moment of despair. 
but it gets good. Let's go to verse 12. And then she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head, one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. So we don't know this is supernatural or if she's just crying so much she can't tell it's Jesus. We're not sure. And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him. And I will take him away. She wanted his body so bad. You can see it. Then Jesus said to her, He said, Mary, have you ever been in that moment in your life when you had nobody else but Jesus calling your name? My brother Adam, his testimony a few months ago was that story exactly. He called me, he called his counselor, he called some friends, and nobody answered the phone. Way to go, Jason. But Jesus called his name. In the midst of our despair, Our sin, here's what's so beautiful about Jesus. Mary was so foolish. She'd been taught her entire lives the scriptures. She had walked with Jesus for years, and yet she doesn't fully get it and believe. But his response was not to heap shame. His response was to call her name. She turned to him and said in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. He called her name. She's in deep despair. And what do we do when we're in deep despair most times? We hide from everyone. But we see in this moment, what does Jesus do? He calls her name. So we get the power of the resurrection on some level, right? We agree to it at least, right? We get the power. But in this, in the moments after he resurrected, we see his patient presence. We see his patient, not just his power, we see his presence in this moment. And so we're going to see this pattern. Here's the first time we see this pattern in these these texts. One. She is in despair. There is this real emotion, this real struggle, this real mental state that Mary is in. But then she sits with Jesus, second step. She sits with Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He turns her despair into joy. And then lastly, what does Jesus do? He sends her out with news to tell. She brings despair, sits with Jesus, He sends her out. This pattern is important. But despair is not the only emotion we see in this passage. Look at verse 19. So Mary goes and tells them, on the evening of that day, on the evening of resurrection Sunday, the first day of the week, hear this, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. So you have Mary out there trying to find the body, weeping over him, 
just in despair. And what are our brave disciples doing? They are hidden in the corner with the doors locked. They were hiding in fear. And they were hiding in fear of what could happen. You hear that? They were in fear of what could happen. So they could be arrested. The Jews could come any moment and arrest them. Or even worse, the Jews could come and, and do some harm to them physically. They were in fear of what could happen. At this point, as I'm studying this, I have to stop. It's, I always realize this, but I am not like Jesus. <laughs> because his level of patience, because they were there with Jesus, weren't they? When they were on the boat, and they are, he has taken a nap, and they are freaking out. They are fearful for their lives. He wakes up and tells everything to calm down, and he tells them what? Fear not. He tells them, fear not. He already told them this was going to happen. He said, fear not. And they're just, so Jesus has just died for them. As they're also hiding during that too. He died for them. Then he literally rose from the dead and they are hiding in fear. And so Jesus, if he was like me, so for me, if I, uh, so we went to the fair last week, and I spent a good four hours of family time, like hardcore, taking pictures, smiling, squeezing on rides, feeding animals, the whole thing. I was father of the year for four hours. But once I did that one decent act, I was done. I was off. Now, Jesus had just died for our sins, rose from the dead. He's had a busy weekend, wouldn't you say? had a busy time, but yet his disciples are hiding in a corner. How would you respond? I would come in, what in the world are y'all doing? But look at Jesus' response here. Look at verse 19. It says here, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. Now, we don't know how he got in. He might have snuck in the door or something supernatural. We don't know for sure. But at one moment, he wasn't there, and then he was there. And his response is this classic Jewish saying of peace be with you. And when he had said this, he didn't scream, didn't say, what are y'all thinking? Why are you hiding? He showed them his hands and his side. And the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. He said to them, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness for any, it is withheld. So you see here, this is great picture of the work of the Spirit in their lives. R.C. Sproul said this about this passage, about this part about the Holy Spirit and the breathing. This is what he called a spirit object lesson. This was not a surprise Pentecost. If you're familiar with the scriptures, Pentecost happens later where Jesus tells him after he ascends to go and wait here and I will send the Holy Spirit. He sends the Holy Spirit and everything goes from there. 
people are saved, speaking in tongues, all kinds of things once the Spirit was sent. He is not sending the Spirit right now. This is an object lesson to the disciples about what was going to take place at Pentecost. It was a reminder to them, this is John's great commission. So in Matthew 28, we see go and make disciples. This is John saying the same thing. I am sending you as the Father sent me. But this spirit object lesson is this right here. You cannot do this in your own power. Remember, he's a teacher. He is teaching them by breathing on them through this lesson that you cannot do this on your own. That you are hopeless without the power of the Spirit. Once again, it's amazing what Jesus does. They are cowards hiding in fear. And if you go just days and weeks later and you see Peter being the boldest preacher maybe ever through these things. So we see him hiding in fear. There is this real mental state, this real emotion, this real sin they're walking in. Then Jesus comes, he sits with them, and he sends them out. And he takes their fear and turns it into boldness and joy. It says here they were glad after being with Jesus. He turns their fear into joy. So we see this emotion, this picture of despair, uh, this picture of fear. And we have one more. Look at Thomas in verse 24. Now Thomas was one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and I place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into, the, into his side, I will never believe. You, you kind of see this escalating almost as far as the levels of lack of belief. Mary in despair, other disciples in fear, and Thomas just straight up not believing, just doubting everything. I want to remind you, Thomas walked with Jesus, heard his teachings, watched his miracles, and then the guys he has done life with for three years are telling him, Thomas, we saw him. And what does Thomas say? Unless I touch the scars, I will not believe. There is a level of arrogance to Thomas right here that's almost astounding. And once again, I would not react the way that Jesus did. Let's keep going. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with him. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them. Once again, we don't know how he does this, but he does it. And he said, peace be with you. Can you imagine Thomas right now? Like the kid who got caught seeing Jesus alive in front of him. Thinking, oh, he's going to let me have it. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it on my side. He says, do not disbelieve, but believe. This is the same man who just defeated sin and death, being as gentle as a mother with a baby. He had every reason to just ream out Thomas, didn't he? 
He says, no, feel this. Don't disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him. You can just, in these words, you can see Thomas just come to life. My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? And then Jesus kind of nudges him to what he's going to do next. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Once again, we see the same pattern. There's this condition, whether it's fear, despair, here it's doubt. We see this doubt, but then the doubt meets Jesus and sits with Jesus. And the doubt turns to belief. The doubt turns to joy. In the midst of Thomas being changed, Jesus sends him back out to go and tell others what Thomas has seen. So you see this pattern. Despair, fear, doubt, name your issue that you're walking in right now, whatever it might be. What the common denominator is this right here. There's a true self and a false self. There's a true self that we are just terrified people are going to see and find out about. So we put on, we iron the shirt, put on the smile. We know the words to say. And we walk around as a false self. But friends, if we want to walk in a resurrection life, we have to learn to give Jesus the true self. To give others the true self. Here's the pattern. Here here, here is the pattern. So there's this gap of real life uh, or secondary life and resurrection life. There's three things. First, admit the true self. This is the mirror. This is the mirror. Admit the true self. Second, we sit with Jesus. Third, we are sent out. This is the pattern we see in this text. This is the pattern, many ways, of the Christian life. And I believe the pattern needed for us today. Friends, we have to admit the true self. If we want to see real healing, if we want to see real formation into the ways of Jesus, if we want to see real ministry happen, we have to be, hit, be true to our, we have to admit the true self. There we go, guys. We got it. This is the gap of the secondary life and the resurrection life. See, the resurrection life includes this. It includes being known, being formed, and being sent. Being known, being formed, and being sent. So I want to talk more about these three things. Admit the true self, being known. Friends, we have to stop hiding. This is the original sin. This is Adam and Eve covering themselves up in their shame. I'll I'll just, you know, this is a pastoral word. Many times the greatest gift to us is being caught in our sin or walking through pain and suffering. But it's the last thing that we want. But it's in those things that kind of force us to truly be known, right? I will just tell you, the greatest gift of my life was being caught in my sin in 2007. The greatest gift to Tracy was me being caught in my sin in 2007. The greatest gift of my life is Sunday night in our little office we meet in. I was with four other guys, and we all shared our story. We shared the story, even the hard parts. And to be seen and to be known and to be loved is transforming. A life of hiding, friends, is a life of death. 
a life of hiding is a life of death. And I understand this. There are things in our lives, there is real despairs. There's real fears. Those are, there's real doubts that sometimes aren't our faults. Here's what I mean. If you are left as a child, you will feel like you're always abandoned. This is very counselor right now, I know that. But that's just the truth. It is natural to feel abandoned. When we heap shame and hiding upon those things, God can't heal us. We're never known because we're so fearful. And we believe that Jesus will abandon us or is upset with us. All these kinds of nonsense things the world has told us. So we have to admit our true self. We have to share the last 10% that we don't want to share. See, the church is called to be this countercultural way. We're called to be a countercultural people. Now, the truth is, many times, the church for many of us is the source of our pain. Is that fair to say? Or, or people in the church, or parents in the church that have lied to us, that have hurt us. And in that hurt, in that shame, we've just stepped away. And now nobody knows us. And we all think this, because I hear it all the time, if you really knew me, if you really knew me, friends, I want to tell you something. Jesus knows you. Jesus sees you. And most important, Jesus loves you. Not the pretty version, not the version you show me and others on social media. He knows you, the dirty parts. But here's what he wants for us to step into the light, to admit those things. So we're called to be this countercultural people and have countercultural practices. See, the world hides, the church confesses. You hear that? The world hides, the church confesses. This might be helpful for us to think about it this way, of how we need to be known. Every Christian needs the following, a spiritual parent. Every Christian needs a spiritual parent parents, which means you need a spiritual mentor in your life. You need someone who is one step ahead of you that's helping you, showing you, encouraging you, challenging you. You need a spiritual parent. You need to be known by that spiritual parent. Second, you need a spiritual family. You need a collection of brothers and sisters around you who are just spurring you on, who are your cheerleaders, who whenever you mess up, whenever you screw up, they're still there. They're cheering. They're pushing. They're pointing you towards Jesus over and over. That's what a spiritual family does. What we have seen is that if I step out of line, the spiritual family pushes me away, right? But a true spirit-filled family that's been bought by the blood of Jesus, we're always spurring and pointing to the one who brings hope and healing. So we need a spiritual parent. We need a spiritual family. And I'm going to say this. We need a spiritual counselor. Now, I'm not saying you need a professional therapist necessarily, but you need a pastor or a counselor, someone who helps you, like a surgeon with a scalpel, work through the issues in your life, work through the sins in your life, work through the strongholds in your life. A spiritual parent, a spiritual family, a spiritual counselor. And the common denominator is you need to be known. You need to be known. But we can't just be known. This is sometimes the fault of something like AA, which is a good program, 
But if all we do is sit around and talk about our problems and our struggles and we're only known, that's a great thing. We also must be formed, right? And the greatest way for you to be formed is our second point. You must sit with Jesus. So Jesus was there in the midst of their fear, despair, and doubt. He walked with them. He lovingly heard them and was present with a thing that changed them from despair to joy and formed them was the presence of God. So for us as Christians, we must be known, but we also must work towards being formed. And we're only formed through sitting with Jesus. Friends, hear this. There is no other way to be formed. The world is deforming us by sitting with the lesser. And Jesus, through his presence and sitting with him, can form us into something supernatural. But we have to be formed. We are either sitting with Jesus or we're sitting with the world. Where we decide to sit is how we're formed or deformed. This is Psalms 1, isn't it? Blessed is the man who meditates on God's word, but the other person, the one that's not happy and not blessed, walks in the ways of the world. Here's all I know. Uh, This is, I believe, biblical, but also in my life. My joy in life. Hear this. My joy in life, almost 100% of the time, is dependent upon me walking and sitting in the ways of Jesus. If you like... If I was on a reality show, oh, Lord, that'd be terrible. If I was on a reality show and you watched how much I walked in spiritual disciplines on that week and you watched my joy, uh, my patience, uh, my wisdom, it's like two different people. It's almost like math where one plus one is two. So here are some practices that I think we should all walk in. Listen, this is not an exhaustive list. There's deep reading of God's word. Deep reading of God's word. Where you're reading, you're sitting, you're meditating, asking God to direct your steps. There's deep reading of God's word. Second, there's silent prayer. This prayer where there's nothing but you and God. There's silent prayer. Three, confession. Where I talked to this one. Where you regularly are confessing to other believers your short spot, your short, your sins in your life. Four, fasting. For, for me, when I'm hitting these things, when I'm in God's word and deep, deep, deep study, when I'm sitting in silent prayer, when I'm confessing to brothers, brothers in Christ, when I'm fasting a day a week from, from food, when I'm really taking a Sabbath and enjoying God and creation and my family, and last, when I'm worshiping with other believers. These six practices I believe, are essential for us to be formed and not deformed. Word, prayer, confession, fasting, Sabbath, worship. If we want to walk in this joy, walk in the way, if we want to sit with Jesus and receive the Spirit and what he has for us, we have to walk in the ways of Jesus. But we're not formed into joy just for our sakes. It's not just for us to have our best life now and to be happy and and be great. We are formed for joy for others. Remember, in all three stories here, Jesus sent out. He heard, he healed, he sent. But here's also the part that's just tough for us to hear. The vast majority of these disciples in this room that he came in, they died a martyr's death. 
This is the hard part for us as Americans for the resurrection life. Because the resurrection life also means death to ourselves. And for these followers in this time period, it meant literal death of their bodies. But hear this, just as we should have a spiritual parent, friends, we're all called to be a spiritual parent to somebody else. We are not called to simply take and receive our entire lives spiritually. We are called to go. And I will tell you one thing about parenting. It is hard. All the parents say amen, right? Parenting is hard. Spiritual parenting is hard. Paul describes seeing Christ formed in others like the pains of childbirth. Now, I have not given birth to a child before in my life. Never will, I don't believe. But I've been in the room. And it's not fun. It's not fun. It is painful. And I will tell you, there is something, but there's something so beautiful about this. Like, you know yourself, don't you? Not the stuff that I know or your friend knows, but like the real you. As a Christian, in my own life and the life of others, nothing more fun than seeing a person who is just jacked up. Like, and, they, and they begin to admit they're jacked up. And they begin to see real healing happen. And then they get, begin to really commit to walk with Jesus. Like they love being in his word. They're confessing their sins. Uh, they're walking in their ways. And they're just full of joy. And in this joy, you, you can't help but see the neighbor over here who was still walking in, 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 in this lesser life. Their life's out of whack. They're hiding. They're in addiction. They're all these things. And you and your joy, you can't look at this person and not want to pursue them with the same love that captured you, right? Or there's this thing in the world that's just not right. Maybe it's an orphan. Maybe it's just race relations in our world. Maybe it's the poor. Maybe it's the overseas. For me. What, this thing that just breaks your heart because once you're walking with God, you can't help but move outward. Like the work of God's always moving us out to that redemptive edge where we're not sure what's going to happen, where it's going to be harder, but it's where life is truly found. But the thing is, when you move out, it will always cost you something. It will always cost you something. Whenever you see your neighbor, if you pursue loving your neighbor, it will cost you something. It will cost you time. It will cost you energy. It will cost you awkwardness. All those things, it will definitely cost you. I'll give an example of my own heart. So our church is partnering with the Hub for this VIP program. And, um, and we serve there once a month. We, my group does. We serve a meal. And I always love it and enjoy it. And then I, we sit down with the Hub leadership team. And they have this VIP program. And they said, well, but for us, it's going to be the way our system works on Thursday nights at 5 o'clock, twice a month. And I hear that. I was like, oh, I can't do that. Because if I do that, I can't do this. It was this morning that I realized that, by the way. That in my own heart, because I didn't want to sacrifice one little thing, because when we move outwards, it always costs something. But I didn't want to give up this one thing so that I could care for the poor among me, right? Because here's the truth, friends. When we move out to that redemptive edge, it will cost us something. It will. 
But what you'll get in return is far greater, which is a life with Jesus. The resurrection life, being known, being formed, being sent. So here's our application today. It's very, very three simple things. I want you to be known. So around this room today, we're going to have our prayer team and some of our elders in the back. Um, I would encourage you, if there is something in your life that you need to confess or need prayer for, today is the day to do that. Go, go find someone on our prayer team and ask them to pray for you. Share the burden on your heart. Let yourself take a step of being known. Second thing, be formed. Sit with Jesus. It's a very obvious step for us today. That's communion. What a beautiful step of being to sit with Jesus today. To take the bread, to take the juice, and remember that his body and blood was shed for us so that we could be in deep union with him. Sit with him through communion. Finally, be sent. I believe for each of us in this room, there's a who or there's a what. There's a person in our life that we feel like God is always putting in front of us. I, I would encourage you to write their name down so we can join you in prayer. Second, there might be a what. There might be a thing in this world that is broken that you cannot go to sleep without thinking about. Let us know the what. We have those connection cards. Write down who is the who and what is the what and how can we pray for you. Let's pray. Uh, dear Lord, uh, thank you for thank you for so many things today. Father, I ask right now that for the people in this room, for myself, that you will help us take a step of faith today. That if we could go from one degree to another of being known, or if we could truly reflect and sit with you as we take communion today, Father, or if there's a name or a thing that we just feel like you are sending us to, Lord. Give us the courage to take those steps today. Father, help us to live as a resurrection people. To live in the great hope that you've purchased for us. Lord, we ask you to move. We love you, Jesus. We pray all this in your name. Amen. Now, communion for us. Um, you do not be a member of our church, take communion. We ask you to be a member of God's church. You put your faith and trust in Jesus. But prepare your hearts. Come when you're ready. We'll be in the back if you want to pray.